Hey Jazz, anything cool and queer or Jewish happened to you recently? Yeah. So recently I had a clothing swap with friends, most of whom were Jewish and most of whom were queer. And I think clothing swaps are kind of inherently queer. And up until this point in my life, I think I've mostly been to explicitly named as such queer clothing swaps. Can we roll that back a second? Is it inherently queer because it is the exchanging of elements that you don't want that become elements that other people want? No, although that's a nice side thing there. I just mean like our clothing swap involved different people of different genders coming into a space and swapping clothes that might have come from somebody of a different gender and also frequently like undressing in front of each other and Mm. comparing aesthetics and bringing items that you know would work for somebody else's vibe and aesthetic. Yeah. Regardless of the gender of the person involved, and it takes a certain amount of self-knowledge and knowledge of each other. And it's like a nice way to explore different kinds of self-expression without having to spend money in any way to do so. And it enhances (laughs) both of your lives by getting rid of things that you don't want, but in a fairly ethical manner, because it's going to somebody else, you're not like throwing it out. And you can also build your own wardrobe or experiment with different kinds of expression without participating in fast fashion so much. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it's good. Most of my clothes come secondhand. The proportion of clothes that I have bought for myself is increasing, but even those are generally from secondhand places, Mm -hmm. if not gifted to me for free from people who think it would match my aesthetic. (laughs) Which is still a significant number of your clothes. Yeah, clothing swaps good. They are. So what was your haul? Oh, I got a bunch of things. (laughs) Several pairs of pants. It was interesting because, you know, for the last few years in my work life, I've been Mm -hmm. wearing almost exclusively button-down shirts. (laughs) And now I don't have a day job per se. Like, I have side (laughs) jobs, but I don't have a day job. And look, I like button-downs and I still own many of them. And there's still definitely more I'd be down to get. And I did pick up one button-down at this clothing swap, But I have a lot of them, and so now I'm a little bit more selective about what ones I want (laughs) and don't want. And, you know, I'm going to be going to school at a cis-dominated institution, but I'm not going to be working at a cis-dominated institution. I mean, that's not true. Almost certainly any work that I do will be at a cis-dominated institution, but it won't be, like, my full-time role. Like, my full-time role will be as a student. And I felt like the button-downs were necessary and useful for me as a way to signal my gender every day. And specifically to signal your gender in opposition to how cis people would generally gender you? Yeah. Because your gender is much more complex than button-downs. And even when we're talking about, like, how you would like to represent yourself... That's more complicated than just button-downs. It is, which is why now I have additional clothes that are new and new shirts that are like styles that I haven't really worn so much that I still 
vibe with. Mm -hmm. But also, like, I really like earrings, and I felt like if I was gonna lean into earrings, which is a thing that is more femme-coded, that I wanted to have a counterbalance. Mm -hmm. But I've also recently, in the last number of months, gotten more, like, stud earrings, which I think of kind of as my more mask earrings. Earrings for studs? (laughs) Cute. And so then I feel more able to counterbalance that with like a shirt that doesn't also scream masculinity. Whereas when I have long, beautiful, dangly ones or longer hair, like I feel more need to counter that with other parts of my clothing. Mm -hmm. Also being able to go back out and get haircuts again. Amazing. (laughs) So yeah, I just think it's a nice format for getting to play around with more parts of self-expression. Yeah. Lulav, what's something cool and queer or Jewish that you did this week or recently? Oh, well, I know I talked about this last week, but we played our first fairly real session of Heart and everybody really liked it, which was impressive. I was expecting at least some people to be like, yeah, this was okay, but... When I asked and gave people the opportunity to be like, yeah, you don't have to say great things. Everybody was like, no, that was great. Thank you. And Shahar specifically told me after that that was the best TTRPG session they'd ever had, which is really touching. It's very sweet. (laughs) Yeah. And so that was with the residents of my good Jewish League of Legends server, which is only like 40 to 50% Jewish, (laughs) but it is 100% queer. And yeah, I got to play a game with Jazz, who is really jazzed about it. (laughs) And I got to play a game with other friends like Shahar and their girlfriend Jamie and Theo, my roommate, and also Dove, who's Theo's old roommate. And it's nice having, like, a mixture of people who are all really psyched to create stories. And an additional queer thing is that we queered the traditional party meets up at a tavern while accepting their first job, and that's how they get together. We queered that narrative by everybody accidentally just like ran into each other and decided to go in the same direction at the same time, which was really fun. Yeah. (laughs) So I'm looking forward to that. I have kind of burned off the prep fever of (laughs) heart. So I'm not spending every waking moment thinking about it. And now I'm just spending half of my, I mean, what? No, (laughs) now I am just looking forward to it as a weekly thing. Real excited about that. Yeah. Do you want to say any other things about Heart or the experience of GMing the game? I was really impressed by the little details that everybody adds and like the ideas that they have. Why? Did you have a thing that you wanted to say? The only thing I would add as a fellow participant, though definitely not a (laughs) GM of the game, Uh it's been a fun thing to participate in too. And also it is my first time doing something that was like a longer campaign. Mm -hmm. 
Because we did play prom quest together, but that was like one or two sessions, right? Yeah, so like I've done shorter games, but I've never really played a longer one. It feels like an experience that a lot of queer people our age participated in. And so that's fun to be a part of that. Mm-hmm. And two, I don't think I've ever played a TTRPG with a partner. And so that's a fun thing to do, too. I will add, Love and I have played individual one-offs with each other, but not like in the thing with other people that was a more structured game than that yeah the dynamics really change when it's what is it six people instead of two yeah (laughs) because with the two-person rpgs that we've played it's very much like we each have a thing that we're coming to the table with and we're just like interweaving our two things but with six people in a gm'd game There's one person who's kind of coordinating the vision of the world and five people who are throwing in suggestions and also given the power to define certain things about the reality that their characters live in. Yeah. It's pretty rad. Yeah. (laughs) I personally, speaking of the Jewish aspect, would not want to play a TTRPG with a minyan. That seems really large. (laughs) Yeah. I have played a non-tabletop role-playing game with a minion, but that required several dedicated mods. Like a video game? No. Do you know Dreamwith? Vaguely. It's a site that replicates a lot of the functionality of LiveJournal, but isn't LiveJournal. And there's a broad community that has several smaller communities that do pan-fandom role-playing games in like a play-by-post sort of thing Hmm. on Dreamwith. Okay. So I played Changed back in 2013, which is where I met Theo. That's fun. The only things that I've played that could be 10 people or bigger is like maybe a game of poker. So we've just really shifted genres at that point. (laughs) Yeah. Ooh, what if we had story poker? Whatever. That sounds fun, actually. You should design it. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, Love, can you take us into the episode? Yes. One, two, three, four. Welcome to Kosher Queers, where the real story poker is the friends that we made along the way. Wait, that's not it. Ah, right. Kosher Queers is a podcast with at least two Jews and generally more than three opinions. Each week, we bring you queer takes on Torah, their jazz. And she's Lulav. And we're here to joke about Judaism and talk Tanakh together. Today, our Chavruta is learning the Haftarah of Devarim, which is Yeshayahu 1-1 to 1-27. The very beginning of the Book of Isaiah. Mm-hmm. Which is way more intense than I thought it would be. 
it's very funny. This is the Isaiah that I knew before we started reading Haftarah. Like, mm. I didn't know that much about most of the prophets, but, like, this one I knew. <laughs> and... Fittingly, this is the third admonition. And it sure reads like one. (laughs) Yeah. So we talked about last time how the beginning of Yeshayahu is paired with the beginning of a new book of Torah. Jazz, can you summarize Devarim for us? Yeah. I'm just summarizing Parshat Devarim, not the whole book. Oh, God, no. And I think this... Parsha is a summary Parsha, but (laughs) give me 75 seconds. Sounds great. Three, two, one, go. After 40 years of wandering, Moses made a speech recapping a whole bunch of stuff that had happened. He said that God said, see all those different groups of people there? Yeah, that land will be yours. There were so many Israelites and they'd been bickering. So God had created representative government with impartial judges who had clear instructions about what to do and what not to do. Then there were spies who went to check out the Amorites, but they got scared and were like, no, there are giants. And even though God said to go fight anyway, they didn't. And so God got pissed and said, okay, then none of you can enter. And the people said, okay, okay, we'll go. But God was like, nope, too late, suckers. And the Israelites got (laughs) crushed. And so then the Israelites were really nervous, but eventually God prodded them to keep going. And they were very cautious and polite to the people of Seir, Esau's descendants. And they kept going without pissing off the Moabites and waited years until the generation of people who had come out of Mitzrayim all died. God wouldn't take land from the Ammonites, but definitely would from the Amorites, which includes (laughs) King Sihon of Heshbon, who rebuffed a friendly offer and so was crushed. Same with another Amorite king, Bashan. Uh, And then the Israelis divided up territory, and the little tribes that wanted to stay behind had to send frontline soldiers also. Finally, they wrap up saying, don't be afraid, keep fighting. End. Okay. Yeah, you finished that with a couple seconds left to go. Yeah. Very nicely done. Yeah, this really is last time on Torah, huh? Yes, (laughs) very much so. So I know that we're in the part with admonitions and consolations that doesn't necessarily connect to the Parsha text, but are you seeing any thematic connections here? Yeah, there's some. It's not as you might imagine, like the strongest connections in the world. But there is stuff that they're recapping here that's still about things like God telling people to do things and them doing other things instead, (laughs) and there being negative outcomes about that. Mm -hmm. That they're like not listening or only listening to the thing that seems convenient in the moment. Yeah. That's a very fair connection. Do you mind if I talk about where we're coming from here? Please do. Okay. So we start in like 780, 760, somewhere around there. BCE, mind you. Okay. We know that we start there because we are given the names of four kings. Utsiyahu, Yotam, Ahaz, and Yehezkiyahu. So Uziahu was a faithful king who later tried to offer incense in the temple himself and was struck by Tsarat until he died. His son Yotam ruled for a while amidst a period with a lot of wars, but was deposed by factions wishing capitulation to the Assyrians. 
And then his son, Ahaz, a.k.a. Yehoahaz II, sold out the northern kingdom by allying with Tukulti-Epileshera III as the Assyrians conquered all the natives who had been fighting with Yehuda during Yotam's reign and previous to that. Then Ahaz's son Yehizkiyahu took over after Ahaz died pretty early in his life. He was like 36. Mm -hmm. And Yehizkiyahu centralized worship of Hashem in the temple. The southern kingdom Yehuda was invaded by Assyrians during that time, regardless of how God-fearing Yehizkiyahu was. Uh (laughs) But he did repel a siege of Yerushalayim, partially by offering tribute, but also maybe partially by sticking it out. The actual historical records are kind of unclear on this. Okay. His real downfall, though, was when he miraculously recovered from illness and then boasted about Yehudan wealth to emissaries from Babylon. Never a good idea. No! You gotta be humble! Well, also, like, why would you make yourself easy pickings? Anyway, yes. <laughs> anyway, that takes us to somewhere around 687 BCE. So the events that Yeshiahu is purportedly prophesying about take place during a pretty long time period of at most a century across the late 700s and early 600s BCE. Mm -hmm. Of course, as we have previously mentioned, some of that prophecy is probably later commentary. Right. So it's from when the Babylonian exile ended circa 539 BCE. Lulav, are you saying they would... (laughs) look back on history and pretend they'd predicted it all along. What? Nobody would ever do that, especially not people writing a book to inspire descendants towards specific moral outcomes. (laughs) Okay. I am saying that, to be clear. Yes. We're joking. Yes. yes. (laughs) I trust our listeners. But yeah, so that's kind of the densest summary of the historical context around Yeshiyahu that we're going to get in the course of our show. And since most of the remaining readings are from Yeshiyahu, I was thinking that we could talk about something else during this segment in the next seven episodes. Oh, okay. Would you be done with that? Do you have ideas for what it is? Well, we're going to talk a little bit more about this off mic, but my idea was that since we have seven consolations, we could have whoever's turn it is to do context for that portion talk about some aspect of the future that they imagine that feels good, like a cool queer Jewish future. Aww. But that's not settled, and we'll talk a little bit more about it. Ooh, stay tuned for that, listeners. (laughs) So can you take us through it? Absolutely. So we've got those prophecies of Yeshayahu, son of Amots, who prophesied about specifically the southern kingdom this time, during the reigns of those four kings. We get a variety of prophecy throughout Nevi'im, some of it directed at Yehuda, but most of it, I think, directed at the northern kingdom of Samaria. So it's interesting that Yeshiyahu, the longest book in Nevi'im, is also like focusing on the heart of Am Yisrael. Mm-hmm. What do you think we can learn from that? So as many critiques as you have of other people's practices, the longest and most in-depth one should probably be of your own, Ooh. is what I'm getting from that. Ooh. 
Okay. <laughs> I have an immediate question for you based on that, which is, what are critiques you have of your own practices? Oh, my own personal practices? Yeah. Or that, if you can't think of any immediately, of any group you consider yourself as belonging to. So, I'm going to focus on self-critique. Okay. I can be overly familiar with people. I will make commitments, but also sometimes ignore those commitments in favor of just being in a game hole or something. Like easy things that I can focus my mind on instead of having to deal with real stuff. What other criticisms of the self can I (laughs) throw down here? I'm extremely anal about everyone else's stuff being very neatly arranged, and yet my own room is in shambles. Okay. There's probably more, but it's increasingly unkind and therefore decreasingly connected to reality. I appreciate both the commitment (laughs) to the values that you espoused of like, hey, I think we should do this. Totally willing to do it. And also uh, being able to draw the line to be like, here's where we move from (laughs) self-criticism into just... Self-loathing. Unreasonableness. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So instead of hearing that, hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for Hashem says, I reared children and brought them up. In this case, Hashem is talking about the children of Yisrael. And they have rebelled against me. Oh my god, we were just talking about this. (laughs) Yeah, Chaz and I and a couple of friends were talking about rebellious children. And like, it was started by Shachar asking, what do you do if your kid becomes a cop? And it was a discussion about what do you do when a child is doing something so antithetical to what you think you've taught them? And also, in what ways do you need to teach them well before that becomes a problem? Right. There's a certain amount of, if there's values you want a kid to have, you have to teach them those values growing up. They're not going to just be born with them. Mm -hmm. And it can't all be in just one flood of like, ah, yes, this is a bad thing. No. It has to be the way that you live your life. Right. The entire way along. And we didn't quite get a chance to get into this as much, but part of my value system is that also children are people. And so, yes, you want to teach them your values, but also you want to listen to and respect the things that they say. And you can disagree with the things that they say, and they can know that. And it's not going to hurt either of you to have that disagreement and explain. And you can do that even with really young children. And that gives confidence to know that they can disagree and that's going to be okay and it's not going to hurt them and you're still going to love them and that your parents value what you have to say. And that's really powerful if you want them to take what you're saying seriously and also not just brainwash them into having your values because you have them, but make them have exposure to the things Mm -hmm. that you care about so that they can see why you care about them and see that they're being treated well and understand that the things you want to teach them are about treating other people well, too. Yeah. You do need to kind of show why that is important and explain it, because if you just brainwash your child, there are a couple outcomes, none of them good. One is the brainwashing is successful, 
and then they just believe things but don't necessarily know why. Two is you try to inculcate good values in them, but instead you rely on a couple of pithy sayings that don't actually mean anything. And so the kid ends up hating that and having a completely opposite view. Or sometimes, in spite of you not actually having good emotional and theoretical backing behind a thing, your child will will turn out fine. Yeah, although, (laughs) look, people are complicated and things work in a variety of ways. And I'm not Mm -hmm. a parent, but it is my impression that in general, children do better when they have an adult in their corner, someone they can rely on. And that adult yeah. isn't always their parent, and it's certainly not always both of their parents. <laughs> and it's wonderful and great and really helpful if it is both of a kid's parents. But if it's one of them, or if it's a teacher at school, or if it's a relative... That's still something like having someone in your corner is still going to be really helpful. Mm -hmm. So an ox knows its owner, a donkey its master's crib, but Yisrael does not know. My people, says Hashem, takes no thought. And I think this kind of points back to what we were talking about, because like, if an ox knows its owner, I'm pretty sure that implies they're aware of where their food is coming from. Mm. And if a donkey knows its master's crib, I'm pretty sure that implies it knows where it feels safe and has shelter. Mm -hmm. And so part of what this line might be saying is that there just was somehow an inappropriate amount of context around the moral precepts that the people were supposed to have. Spell that one out for me, actually, a little more. What do you mean? Hmm. So mostly I'm being petulant in my reading. Okay. (laughs) Because this is not actually what the author would have intended. Go for it. There are these examples where the hierarchy of caretaker and caretaken is pretty explicit. Mm -hmm. But Yisrael is an entire group of people. And so... It's really hard to morally instruct an entire group of people in a way that makes sense. And also to not have people with power take advantage of those with less power. Mm. So basically, my reading of this is that Yisrael does not know who reared and brought them up. Because, I mean, every single part of Jewish history has involved iniquity. Mm. I was studying Talmud the other day, and they were talking in the bit that I was studying about who could and could not serve as a witness. Mm. And there's lots of stuff that's going on there. They were arguing about a lot of different groups of people, and they didn't always Mm -hmm. provide reasons. So some later commentators would come in with their own reasons, but the original... Tanaim and Amoraim, like the people who wrote the Mishnah and Gemara, Mm -hmm. didn't always give reasons. So later commentators or us would have to come up with those commentaries. (laughs) But one of the people who they said can't be a witness is a king, Mm. which was super interesting to me. One of the later commentators piped up and said, it's because you have to show respect for the king and therefore they can't testify. Okay. I don't even understand this one, to be really quite honest with you. But I do have an alternative to it. 
Oh. Which is a similar idea that kings shouldn't testify because if a king testifies, who's going to dare to go against the king? I think that is what that second source was saying. It's just we needed you to spin that out with more detail. (laughs) Right. So the idea being like, Kings can't testify because you shouldn't give any one person that kind of power to determine the fate of another human being. And like, if a king says something, probably everybody's going to feel like they have to go along with it. So the king just can't testify. Yeah. Thanks, Kanye. What? No one man should have all that power. Mm, Okay. (laughs) So we get into this part about why do you seek further beatings that you continue to offend? Every head is ailing and every heart is sick. And like, I think that kind of points out what I was talking about with the pedagogy here isn't that great. Because a lot of it is focused on beatings, on the arc of history going real bad for people who have a system of iniquity. Yeah. And if the way that you communicate with a child is solely through beating, they just resent you. There was a really interesting thing that we were doing at one point when I was working in Jewish Mm -hmm. education, where we looked at instances of God as teacher Mm -hmm. and said, where is there instances of pedagogy that we could pull from? And where (laughs) is there instances of God as a bad teacher? (laughs) And how can we, like, look at sources that way, too, of things telling us what not to do? Yeah. And this would be one of those sources on what not to do? I would say so. (laughs) If you have to ask the question, why aren't you responding to incentives? It might also be time to ask yourself, hey, do I need to change the system of incentives since it's not working? Right. Speaking of ways that raising children can go wrong... If the way that you attempt to teach a child what is wrong is with violence, then either as soon as they can push back, they will, or they learn that the way to assert truth is through violence, or they will parrot what you're saying, but only long enough to make you stop hitting them. Right. So, like, none of those are great. No. (laughs) Yeah, we could use more positive profits than bad things happening. Positive profits. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, we only had a couple. And Natan, he was a positive prophet in that he tried to give people an example of what to do. But also, when he was old, he was all like... I have never cheated you, so jot that down. And like, (laughs) if that's the best we got, we need more. (laughs) Okay, take us to the next one. Yeah, okay. So things are bad. Things are really bad. Sion is a sukkah in a vineyard. Ooh, it's pointed out that through all of these travails... Adonai Tzvayot left us some survivors. Yeah. And if it hadn't, it would be like Sdom and Gomorrah, where the entire city is wiped out because they couldn't find, what is it, three cool people? Ten. A minion. Did it start with ten or end with ten? Ended with ten. It started with fifty. Man, ten cool people is a lot. (laughs) It's a city! (laughs) 
also bargaining got down from 50 people to 10 people is like pretty good mm-hmm. they found three. Oh, found three looking for 10 gotcha i think they actually found more than three technically because there was supposed to be all of lot's family but lot's family is himself his two daughters <laughs> and his wife and one of those didn't make it out but the wife didn't make it out so mm -hmm. it's just him and his two daughters and i think it's frankly really debatable what level of good people they were <laughs> considering their following actions yeah okay so we get to the part that is emblematic of yeshiahu what need have I of all your sacrifices, says Hashem? I'm sated with all these burnt offerings. I have no delight in lambs and he-goats. Who asked that of you? <laughs> Basically, stop bringing me things. It is getting offensive because... It doesn't say the because necessarily, but I think the implied because here is you're giving me all the things that have been asked for in text, but you're not following the instructions beyond that mm. like you're filling out the paperwork but you're not actually doing the underlying thing yeah can you think of like a modern analog for this yeah so this isn't a great example because he is definitely manipulating him but in one of the early episodes of hannibal from 2013 oh, no. <laughs> will graham has to get a psyche eval and he's assigned to Hannibal Lecter. And Hannibal just signs the papers straight off and is like, here, you have these signed papers? Now talk to me. And when it's not a cannibal and copycat killer doing that, that does seem like a good idea of saying, hey, you don't need to bring such and such sacrifices, but we do need to talk about what's going on with you. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Or did I try too hard to include a uh, media property that we watched last night? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think I'd accept it. <laughs> but I was also trying to think of a comparison. There is a website that I like reading that's called Ask a Manager. That's an advice <laughs> column. Uh -huh. And... Sometimes people write in and are like, so I'm applying to a job. Should I give candy to the hiring manager with my application? Should I send along a song I wrote also to make me stand out, me? even though the job is like filing clerk? Should I do such and such a thing? And every time she's like, no, no. I know that you think that you're like adding special things and it will make you good, but actually, really, genuinely, don't add gimmicks. Just send in a good resume and a really good cover letter <laughs> and whatever else they asked for in the application and make sure that you're sending in everything that they asked for in the application and those are all good. But like, no other things. Just don't do it. Just do the thing they asked for and do it well. Yeah. It's like, dudes... Please read the profile that I wrote specifically for you to read instead of sending me dick pics. I know you think that this is a treat. It's not helpful. Right. <laughs> so. I found a modern example. There you go. <laughs> so, yeah, that feels like the appropriate analogy to me of you think you're doing something that's gonna, like, be good and get the results you want. But actually, you should just, like 
do the baseline mm-hmm. and do it well and <laughs> not do the other things because that takes away time from the things you could be doing to do the baseline well yeah. and also it makes you look underqualified and bad even if you are qualified and bad but also are you really if you got to resort to gimmicks <laughs> So here's the filling out the resume and cover letter well. Here's the responding to the question asked in the profile. Here's the therapy with Hannibal Lecter. (laughs) Wash yourselves clean. Put your evil doings away from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Devote yourselves to justice. Aid the wronged. Uphold the rights of the orphan. Defend the cause of the widow. All of this stuff that's been talked about throughout Torah. And I know that we've got several books where the proper sacrifices are maybe even more of the text than the moral parts, but the moral parts are more important. Yeah, that's Isaiah's takeaway. Also, I do want to say just because we didn't dwell on what the specifics were of the like rituals that Isaiah was saying, you could skip. And they're very funny to me because sometimes they're like, you actually don't have to bring sacrifices and incense is offensive. But also (laughs) then there's this like, your new moons and fixed seasons fill me with loathing, (laughs) which is very funny to me because we don't so much in modern times think of it this way. I mean, I know Rosh Chodesh continues to be a thing that exists, Mm -hmm. but it still just reads very much as like, you don't like calendars, my dude? <laughs> and also, you don't like the passing of time? Like, that seems like a you problem. As per the Book of Job, like, I didn't make the planets move in their planetary motion. You know, mm. like, that seems like a you problem, not a me problem. Perhaps it is specifically marking the head of the month as a totally different thing, instead of focusing on the important part of that, which is like, time passes and you need to notice that time is passing and do the work required of every different season and i don't know celebrate that reality exists Mm. and if it's just about the new moon that fills me with loathing Ugh. okay (laughs) yeah that's just my reading of it okay i like that what should we do after that then Well, I think we should reach an understanding, at least says Hashem. Okay. And then we've got some color comparisons here. Be your sins like crimson, they can turn snow white. Be they red as dyed wool, they can become like fleece. Jazz, how do you feel about white being the color of sinlessness and cleanliness? So I have contradictory thoughts on it. One of which is, in general, I am cautious about metaphors, particularly in English, Mm -hmm. that emphasize white as the best, because I think it's too easy to lean into things that emphasize, like, white as good and black as bad, Mm -hmm. which ends up sometimes being related to race imagery. Uh This is not a black-white comparison. It's a red-white comparison. And specifically red like blood, right? No, it's not. So the two kinds of red specified here are both fairly positive images of red. Okay. So this word here, like kashanim, it's plural, right? Modifying sins. 
chata'echem, your sins. Mm. They're like this red. And this is a particular red that is a dye made from a particular insect that's red. Mm. It's kind of a neutral thing. But the second red is tola, which is like tola'at, like the type of holy red they use to make part of the mishkan. So this is not a negative comparison. It is more that the comparison being made here is vividly dyed fabric versus undyed fabric. Okay. It's compared to snow, sheleg, or tsemer, this like undyed wool. Hmm. And so to me, like the comparison reminds me of Yom Kippur. Yeah. Where we wear like white, but specifically we wear undyed fabric. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason we do that is because that's what we're buried in traditionally because we come from the earth and from the earth we return yeah and that idea of like you're not extra ornamenting it up it's just (laughs) a thing in its rawest form Mm -hmm. untouched snow wool that hasn't yet been modified feels like that's what it's saying here like your sins can transform into something that's been untouched okay Oh, is it saying that your sins are like a fabric that is crimson, a fabric that is dyed wool, which is to say something complicated. If your misdeeds are this really complicated dyed fabric, they can become just deeds that are really simple. Ooh, I like that. That wasn't the interpretation I was going to go with, but I do like it. Because... I am otherwise confused because, like, blood makes sense to me if you went with something different, like, be your sins snow yellow, they can turn snow white. (laughs) If it was something like that, where it's actual noted impurities, that would make very plain sense. But the fact that it's, if your sins are like this worked fabric that traditionally looks good they could instead be white like the thing that you're buried in that is on the face of it confusing to me i like it kind of okay i've worked with both dyed and undyed wool Mm. and there's something special about it in different ways but if you're focusing on like i did something wrong and i want to work out what I should do from first principles, Mm -hmm. you got to actually go back to the first principles and start from the beginning. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. I like that. So if you agree, you'll eat the good things. If you disobey, you will be devoured by the sword or you will eat the sword. (laughs) Not really sure based on just the translation. I think it's supposed to be the sword will eat you. Yes. (laughs) Okay. So then we talk about Yerushalayim as, I guess, a metaphor for the people of Yisrael. The faithful city that was filled with justice now has murderers. Your silver has turned to dross, which basically means it oxidized. It turned black with age and wear. Your wine is cut with water. And just a bunch of bad things, mostly talking about all the good things that you had, the rulers who were supposed to be examples, the people who served them, they turned out to be thieves, 
and everyone is just looking for gifts all the time. They do not judge the case of the orphan, and the widow's cause never reaches them. Mm. This really harkens back to when we were talking about Shlomo's first big case, where he was trying to help Tuzanot find closure around the death of a child. Yeah. And he took up that case. That's what a good ruler is supposed to do is if you put somebody in a position of power, they're supposed to look at the people who don't get helped out and figure out a solution that works for them. Yeah. So because it has gone this way, Hashem will turn its hand against you and smelt out your dross as with lye and remove all your slag. Jazz, do you know what that means? Yeah, it's like you're going through and basically intensively cleansing and really like thoroughly cleaning it up. And lye is like a very potent material to do that with, which can harm people, but does really effectively clean metal. Yeah, like tin and some other like low melting point metals will often oxidize really quickly, which is to say there will be dross on top. And so if you heat it up and mix that in with sodium hydroxide or lye, that reduces it and you can just pour off the nasty stuff instead of mm. having it be part of the metal and weakening it and making it look in most cases worse. So yeah, we are told that with all the smelting, Zion shall be saved in the judgment, her repentant ones in the retribution. So we close this admonition with the teensiest turn to consolation. Teensiest. <laughs> Which, to be clear, if we continued another two lines, would go right back into the admonitions. Uh-huh. <laughs> So Tisha B'Av is this week, mm-hmm. not this week at the time we're recording, but at the time it comes out. And we'll probably link to some Tisha B'Av things happening around. Mm. But that's what the admonitions are heading towards, is Tisha B'Av, is preparation for that. Which, as a reminder, is like the worst day ever, according to Jewish myth. Yes. Bad things happen on Tisha B'Av, and it is like a day of mourning. And that's why we're thinking about wrongdoing. Sometimes um, people also have done, in recent couple years, different kinds of protests on Tisha B'Av related to injustice. But it's also traditionally a day of like really sitting and weeping and reading Echa, the Book of Lamentations, And I think it makes for a good time also to do some reading about teshuva or Hmm. about transformative justice or to read something about trauma. Yeah. Like it's a good day to be reckoning with what do we do with bad things in different ways. Yeah. Jazz, do you have any particular plans for this year's Tisha B'Av? I don't yet. A thing about this year's Tisha B'Av for me is that I will be just about to move and I haven't quite figured out what I'm going to do to be thinking about those big questions at that time. I will. I'll figure something out, but I haven't figured it out quite yet. Mm-hmm. A suggestion? Mm-hmm. Just as Tisha B'Av brought the destruction of multiple temples and like the scattering of the Jewish people across the world, 
you probably won't be living with this exact set of roommates anymore. So that could be a thing to mourn. It is, and it's a loss, but it's also a good thing, and so I don't necessarily want to think of it just as a destruction. Yeah. Though I think that is kind of encapsulated in what you were talking about with, like, doing reading about trauma. You can wallow in the bad stuff while also thinking about the implications that has for the future, including a future that might be better. Yeah. Yeah. I guess you'll also have to think about what your Tisha B'Av plans might be. Yeah. Listeners, stay tuned and we'll let you know, I guess. (laughs) So that brings us to Raiding God's Writing a portion where we talk about the Haftarah and really condense it down into a scale that we then inflict on the other person. (laughs) Do you have one for me? Sure. Lulav. um... (laughs) Okay, what type of rebellion would you perform against this Haftarah or for the sake of this Haftarah, whichever way you prefer to frame it? Hmm... The conversation that we were having was about a child becoming a cop, which is a great betrayal. And I was a residence assistant. Is that what RA stands for? Something like that. I was an RA, which is basically a cop, but it was for like a relatively intentional community because you decided to be at that college, but it was still being a cop. So I think... I would rate the rebellion as being an RA, even though everybody is like, dude, that's just a cop. I don't know that that's the universal take on an RA, but sure. (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay, because this Haftarah inspires me to like, do better to ask people what's going on with them and do the best parts of being an RA, which are like reminding people of how the intentional community is supposed to go and listening to their problems. But also, I was not a good person when I was an RA. And that's still a betrayal, kind of like how this Haftarah talks about why do you seek further beatings? Like the idea that continued punishment is going to result in anything. So we're holding both of those aspects, the caring community support thing, and also the you're in trouble and you're getting punished over and over again. Hmm. Yeah. Jazz, how much are you diluting the lie that this Haftarah uses to scrub oxide off of metals? Uh, like 40%. Okay. Because I think there's a lot of really good and useful stuff here and lots of ways to learn from it and lots of ways to think about it and really beautiful ideas of like, you take the things that are good and you make them meaningful, and it's not good to keep empty ritual without meaning, Mm -hmm. in the same way that it's not good to teach people things without telling them why. (laughs) And so I think that there's a lot that's like really good and beautiful, and also you gotta translate it to make sure that it works. Yeah. And I'd have to do the calculations to figure this out, but a... 40% by weight sodium hydroxide solution is still like 
you can't touch that because your skin will slough off. <laughs> so, like, you need to be very careful with how you apply it. Mm. Okay. Can you take us to the close and be very careful about where you put that sodium hydroxide solution? <laughs> I can. Thanks for listening to Kosher Queers. If you like what you've heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash kosherqueers, which will give you bonus content and help us keep making this for you. Also, if you can't commit to ongoing support but would still like to contribute, you can give to our Ko-fi, which is at ko-fi.com slash kosherqueers. Find out more information about our podcast, including bios for our team, and links to our social media at kosherqueers.gay. Also, please spread the word about Kosher Queers. Our artwork is by the talented Lior Gross. Our music is courtesy of the fabulous band Brivola, whose work you can find on Bandcamp. Go buy their albums. They're great. Our sound production this week is done by our excellent audio editor, Ezra Faust. Jazz Twersky makes sure that every episode gets transcribed. You can find a link to the transcripts in our episode descriptions at kosherqueers.gay, where you can also see if Jazz roped in additional help for the episode. Sometimes I get so used to saying kosherqueers.gay that I forget that our top-level domain is literally .gay, and this is one of those times where I have re-realized it. It's great. I love it. I'm Jazz Twersky, and I recorded this audio on the traditional lands of the Lenape people. I'm Lula Varno, and you can find me at Spacetruck6 on Twitter, though I have been denying a couple follow requests because uh, once you're famous enough, you don't really need more people following your personal account. <laughs> That's not why. Uh, it's not not why. Anyway... You can also yell at me at Palm Liker on Twitter. You can yell at both of us at Kosher Queers on Twitter Very really true. genuinely about the episodes and we will always answer you. Yeah, we really enjoy seeing people's reactions to things, even and kind of especially when they are negative. Anyway, I recorded this audio on the traditional lands of the Wapekute Dakota. Have a lovely queer Jewish day. This week's gender is an unfathomably small bladder. This week's pronouns are pi piss. <laughs>